last Sunday, if you were here, you will know that we took a detour into the story of David and Shimei in 2 Samuel 16. We did that to remind ourselves that believers with soft hearts open to God, even leaders, look for the Lord's correcting hand in the criticisms of other people that they receive, even when those criticisms are given without love. When other people criticize and challenge us, that is one of the basic ways that God comes to us to change us. Even if you are a leader, a pastor, an elder, a missionary, a seminary teacher. Last week I wanted us to see all of that as an established principle in the scriptures before we grappled with these rather absolute sounding words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 4. Now we talked about Shimei's screaming insults against David and we established that they're not really good grounds for believing as David seemed to do that Shimei's screaming criticisms were, in fact, from God. We said that even though David's sensitive heart was open to the Lord, it was also the case that Shimei's ranting, cursing, angry outburst was a horrible thing. But God sometimes is in the hard words that we hear from another, especially another believer. So we ended last week's sermon with these two remarkable passages. David's words in Psalm 141, let a righteous person slap me, hit me, it is a kindness. Let him rebuke me, it is oil for my head, a blessing in other words. Let not my head refuse it. And then a similar teaching, this time from David's son Solomon in his Proverbs. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds, literally the blows of a friend. Many are the kisses of an enemy. Now, this doesn't mean that we should become slap-happy Christians bashing each other with sharp words because, after all, we're all supposed to take it. If it's true that God himself would speak to us in the criticisms of others, it is also true that there is a great deal in the word of God as to how we are to go to each other. Spouse to a spouse, a parent to a child, friend to a friend, church elder to church member. Our criticisms, friends, are to be characterized by humility and gentleness according to the Word of God. We'll come back to this because it is so profoundly important, really, in our own walk with the Lord and in our life in community here with one another. But I just want to whet your appetite with this insight from the great English Puritan pastor from the 17th century, Richard Baxter. 
He expressed it so well when he said this, and I'm going to paraphrase it just a bit. I have observed that nothing so much keeps someone from receiving the truth as urging it on them with too harsh a challenge and criticizing too heavily their errors because then you engage their honor in the matter and they defend their errors as themselves and stir up all their wit and ability to oppose you. In a learning way, people are ready to receive the truth. But in an attacking way, they come armed against the truth with prejudice and animosity. Oh, dear Father in heaven, that we might grow in grace to be like that with one another, to come in a way of helping another person to learn rather than attacking in our marriages, with our children, with one another. Now, last week I said that to me, at least, the first reading of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 5, looks like it contradicts the teaching of the Word of God in other places that we have just mentioned, the way God comes to us in criticism, and that we actually find to be true in our Christian experience. You have the verses in front of you in your bulletin today, 1 Corinthians 4. In the first three verses, Paul says this, This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you. That's not so difficult. But then Paul adds, or by any human court. It's literally by a human day. In other words, a merely human occasion for evaluation. Now, that to me sounds very much like Paul is teaching that Christian leaders and teachers are above criticism from other believers. And they're free to write it off if it comes because leaders are not judged from below, that is, by those they lead, but only by God who is above them. Now, you might say, well, wait a second, Paul is not talking about himself here merely as a Christian leader or teacher, but as an apostle, as one who had seen Christ and as one who is sent by Christ. Well, then does that imply that the apostles were above any criticism from other Christians as far as how they conducted their ministry? It's possible that they were. Later in chapter 12, here Paul will teach that the first, and he uses that term, the first spiritual gift that the church was given was the gift of apostleship. That is, Christ commissioned his chosen apostles to unfold under the guidance of the Holy Spirit all of the teaching that flows from the great redemptive acts of Christ's life, from his death and from his resurrection. 
Well, that would imply that not everything that was true of apostles could be imitated by church leaders who came after them because theirs was a unique gift. So maybe nobody could criticize them. But don't forget Paul's emphatic insistence with the Christians in the Galatian churches who were in danger of losing the very core of the gospel, the idea, the truth, that we are made right with God only by grace, received by simple trust in Christ's work, that we are not saved by our obedience in any way. There, Paul said, even if we, that is, me and my co-workers, or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one you received from us is the sense, let him be cursed. Let him be damned. That's what it means to be cursed by God. And Paul repeats it again in the verse following. Well, what about other apostles? Could they evaluate one another's faithfulness to their apostolic ministry? Could other apostles judge and correct each other? Well, apparently they could. Because according to Galatians 2, Paul did stand in judgment over against the apostle Peter on one occasion at the church in Antioch when Peter needed to be corrected on a fundamental issue touching the gospel. Now, was it possible for Peter to be wrong as an apostle, but not the apostle Paul? Why is that not spiritual arrogance on Paul's part? And if you look down at verse 16 of chapter 4, Paul says, and he's speaking to the congregation, I urge you to imitate me. Well, Maybe Paul means for those elders whom the Lord is raising up in the church following his departure, perhaps elders and pastors are to imitate Paul in this and make themselves impervious to the criticisms of those they lead on the grounds that God only corrects and rebukes and redirects his people from the top down, as it were. Now that's actually an approach to their ministry that too many pastors and elders here and across the globe actually take. And at the risk of sounding pompous, there are PCA churches I know of where the pastors and elders appear to function in exactly that way. No challenging or correcting of Christian leaders by those who are being led. The idea is, look, we're the ones with authority. Christ has given it to us. Sure, he is going to judge our ministry in the end, but in the meantime, if you are a Christian leader, here's what you really need to do. You need to put up kind of a wall around your ministry and your life. Otherwise, not much is going to get done. Sure, you're supposed to listen to for God's leading in your own heart and mind, but let the criticisms of fellow believers bounce off that wall like arrows glancing off of steel plating. Otherwise, you will be constantly navel-gazing, and eventually it will lead to the paralysis of analysis, and you will be completely unsure of yourself 
as a leader. Now that sounds like a caricature of Christian leaders, but sadly, in too many situations, it's not. I just read a Christian, in a Christian news story the other day about the third largest church in Europe. It's in Kiev, Ukraine, actually. They have a Nigerian pastor. He has confessed to having affairs. And this news organization printed part of the letter that this pastor's mentor since 1995 wrote in a recent letter to him. And this is what he wrote. If I had to use words to describe and give a very general perspective about you, I would choose such words as hallucinations of grandeur. Now, you've all heard the term delusions of grandeur. This is hallucinations of grandeur, narcissistic or sociopathic behavior. And then this mentor actually quoted 1 Corinthians 2 that we have looked at. You said that according to 1 Corinthians 2, 2 through 10, everything you are going through, that is all of the hardships, is connected to your apostleship. But not Paul nor any of the apostles in preparation for apostleship were found to have defiled 20, 30 or more women, as you confessed. It's true, you have mastered technique, voice control, by which I take this mentor to mean eloquence in the pulpit, communication skills, strategic planning. But what you, but what you have failed to recognize, like many others, is that what makes or breaks ministers is not teaching, but what goes on within your soul. Now, the pastor is supposed to have been removed for, from his duties for six months, but his Facebook page is up, his blog has remained active, and the church in their website has not at all mentioned this six-month sabbatical. In fact, the news article went on to say this. Apparently, several of those close to him have accused him of thwarting attempts to help him or discipline him. What a great insult to Jesus Christ, whom he serves. Well, back to verse 3. With me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court or any kind of human agency. But then Paul goes on. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself. Now here, it sounds like Paul is teaching, that even though he is a sinner, he is a son of Adam, he has a completely clear conscience about the way he was living out every part of his ministry. I am not aware of anything against myself. And not only that, but he doesn't even look to see if he might be going off the rails in some way. He doesn't seem to do any kind of self-examination, any soul-searching. <clears throat> he just leaves that to Christ at the final judgment. I do not even judge or examine myself. And I want to say, whoa, because I can say, that that is not how I have thought of my ministry as pastor here. 
For the last 35 years, every four years for a while, and then every five years more recently, when we approached my pastoral evaluation, I had to say to myself, Ron, if the congregation says to you now that it's time to leave in our judgment, you have a duty to know what those weaknesses and shortcomings in your ministry are that their decision would likely be based on. Except, I told myself, if they just want shorter sermons, then I can push all the blame onto them. (laughs) Jesus himself cited that ancient piece of proverbial wisdom, physician, heal thyself. Christian leaders have a duty before God to know the shortcomings of their ministry. Surely that is true. And that's why Paul's insistence here is so puzzling to me. It is not just, you know what, your criticism, Corinthians, there's bad stuff going on there. Your criticisms of my ministry, it's really not decisive for me at all. Verse 3 is more radical than that. I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself. Now, let's take care, because Paul is quick to go on and point out that this doesn't mean his ministry is without fault. But he does seem to say that no other believer or no other human agency is to evaluate him on the question. Only Jesus And only when Jesus returns in the final judgment. And so Paul goes on. I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Now, I want us to look at a verse that proves that however we are to understand what Paul really means when he says, I do not even examine myself, he doesn't intend it in a kind of absolute way. Proof of that comes from the passage that I have on your bulletin insert this morning, and we'll get to this um, Later, as we go through 1 Corinthians, it's in chapter 9, verse 24. We have the Summer Olympics coming up in Brazil. Paul uses, and of course the Olympics existed in Paul's day, but he uses this athletic metaphor. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we, that is we Christians, an imperishable. So, and now he turns to himself, I do not run aimlessly. I do not box like someone beating the air. You know, you try to hit your opponent when you're boxing. But I discipline my body. It's interesting that the verb here means to give one a black eye. But I discipline my body. I give my body a black eye, as it were, and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be 
disqualified. Now that does not sound like a man who is not looking at his ministry, at his life, and examining it. And finding those areas where he needs to bring his heart and maybe even his actions under greater control. Surely what Paul is stressing here in these opening verses of chapter 4 is this, that Christian leaders serve God's people well only by courageously serving Christ first. Especially apostles, as those who were inspired by God to build up the church's teaching on the foundation who is Jesus. But all leaders, apostles, evangelists, teachers, pastors, they all serve God's people well only by serving Christ first. Look at how he opens this section, verse 1. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. You see, Jesus Christ and not the church dictates the message, the content of the gospel. And Christ even dictates the basic principles of how Christian ministry is to be conducted. So if some of these Corinthians are not impressed with Christ's teaching and they don't like Paul's divinely inspired emphasis on humility in church leaders, a humility which Paul takes pains in the opening chapters of his letter to demonstrate is at work in the cross of Christ, going to a scandalous death on a Roman cross, all for love's sake, the love of his people. Well, Paul's not going to lose a lot of sleep over those criticisms because that's what the gospel is all about. And yes, it's true, according to verse 2. It is important that the servants of Christ are stewarding faithfully these fantastic mysteries of grace and glory that God has now revealed in the finished work of Christ on the cross. And then all that flowed from that in Christ bursting out from his burial tomb. But as Paul goes on in verses 3 and following to insist on Christ is the master, not this group of people, these detractors in Corinth who are stuck on themselves and caught up in pride, and Christ is the one who ultimately will judge how faithful his servants have been. Not the church. So then we come to verse 6. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. Now, it may be that Paul is speaking generally here, pride where one is being favored against another, but many commentators think that when Paul mentions himself and Apollos here and says, look, I'm, I'm talking about me and Apollos, that he means specifically to speak into this situation where his detractors have said, no, we like Apollos. He's the A number one guy. We don't like Paul. We don't like the way he baptizes. We don't like his style in preaching, etc., etc. Because it's clear 
that Paul in this letter and even here in this chapter begins to speak to his detractors specifically. Now, we're not going to spend much time on what Paul says here, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. It's very, very difficult to know exactly what Paul means by that. The best guess is that Paul is referring to the Old Testament scriptures that he has already alluded to, but it's very difficult to understand in more detail what Paul means by, quote, not going beyond what is written. Well, let's move to verse 7. For who sees anything different in you? Anything superior? We might translate it, who sees anything so special about you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it. I submit to you that these are two of the most profound questions in the whole Bible. Verse 7 deserves a whole sermon, but these two questions highlight and they underscore and they celebrate the reality that all human beings in every area of their living, but especially Christians, are first and foremost not accomplishers but receivers of gifts from God. That is first and foremost a human being and particularly believers are those who every single day live by grace, by gifts given to them, whether that truth is acknowledged or not. There is simply nothing that we have that is not traceable to God having given it to us. It's an extraordinarily wonderful way of putting it. Can you name anything you have that wasn't given to you? We'll do a sermon on that sometime, but let's move on to eight. Now here, friends, Paul gets sarcastic with the Christians in Corinth, and I think that that is refreshing. Why? Well, because Christian leaders serve those they lead in what we might call the tenacious give and take of family relationships, the family of God. It is true, Christian leaders must serve Christ first, and they must do that courageously. But if they do, they will know that Christ wants them to serve his people for whom he died. And he wants them to do that in the tenacious strength of what we might call family relationships. So now Paul begins to zing them here with sarcasm. Already you have what you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. Would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. He's sort of calling them on their pride and their pretentiousness. But now he's going to draw a contrast with himself. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all. Like those sentenced to death. Because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake. But you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. 
You are held in honor, but we in disrepute to the present hour. We hunger and thirst. He means this literally. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse, the garbage of all things. And then he says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed. Well, maybe a little ashamed, but supremely to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. What is the tenacity of family relationships? It is the tough fiberedness of relationships that allow disagreement, that allow frustration, here even sarcasm, because we are family. And we can trust in the strength that God gives to family relationships. We are indeed the household of God, the family of God. And families should know how to argue in the strains and stresses of life. Now, when we say we are the family of God, that we are brothers and sisters here, and that in fact, as Paul will say to the Christians in Thessalonica, that he is not only a father to them, but he is also a nursing mother to them, it doesn't mean that it is never wrong to leave a congregation. But if it comes to that, that is to be not the first resort but the last resort. The first resort is to take hold of our relationships and pull to stretch them. Why? Because we truly care about one another. Christian leaders, they serve God's people well only by courageously serving Christ first. And how important this is that Christian leaders serve those they lead in this tenacious give and take of family relationships, the family of God. We don't have time to develop the third thing, but it's very clear here, isn't it, in verses 9 through 13, that Christian leaders suffer in their service to the flourishing of God's people. And they do that after the example of Jesus. We'll come to this again in this sermon series on 1 Corinthians, but it's profoundly important that Christian leaders had better have suffering in their little bag of what they are learning how to do when they step into leadership. In some important ways... <clears throat> As a 21st century pastor, I'm different than the Apostle Paul was as a first century apostle. I believe that I have to be open to you in your criticisms in a way that the Apostle Paul 
did not because he was an apostle directly commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ. And I will say that through the years, the Lord has used you. He's used my wife, he's used my kids, but he's used you and people who have come before you here to confront me with my faults, with my blind spots, with the weaknesses in my ministry. And it has been most salutary, helpful, even if at times hard. But it is the way it is supposed to be if we are truly family. All these kinds of things, friends, are profoundly difficult to actually pull off. And you have to know your limitations at any given point. Sunday after worship is not a time to challenge me about something in the sermon. I can't hear you. I won't hear you. I refuse to hear you. I know my limitations. Because that's like telling a mom that her baby is ugly and they won't hear you. But I can say that I believe that God has used you in deep and profound ways. The great model for us is what G.K. Chesterton once said about his relationship with his brother, whom he loved dearly. He said, we, we argued every single day, but we never once had a quarrel. Now, I think he probably overstated it some. But to argue and to pull and push Paul moves from being sarcastic here to threatening to cajoling and comforting the whole range of what parents do with their children because he felt so keenly bound to them in this father-child relationship. It's true that at times that can become overly paternalistic, but it's also a wonderful image that God has given us, and I have them too, fathers in the Lord, mothers in the Lord, who care for us, who affirm us, who encourage us, who comfort us, but also who know how to challenge us. Let's pray together, shall we? Oh Lord, we, <clears throat> we bow low. And we do thank you for the Apostle Paul. And though, as Peter once said, there's a lot of hard things that Paul writes about some at least that are difficult to understand. But we thank you for Paul who knew that he had to watch it. And so indeed he disciplined his body and called himself to order because he understood that he was indeed a child of Adam. Lord, how we thank you that you give us one another. You give us spouses. You give us children. You give us parents. You give us co-workers. You give us elders and pastors. You give us friends. You give us one another as members in the body of Christ. Oh, Lord, we long to be changed more than we are, more deeply than we are. Teach us even from your word, from this remarkable relationship that Paul had with the Christians, with the church in Corinth, such a difficult relationship in so many ways, and yet such a precious one, even as we've seen today. Oh, Lord, come to us now, Lord Jesus, as we feast on you and remind us of your great humility, that we might learn it better than we do. 
the really crucial places, and the really difficult relationships. Lord, help us, we pray. We are weak, but thanks be to God, you are strong in us. Hallelujah and amen.